My name is Darren Sides, and I'm the Minister of Families and Discipleship here, and I'm glad that you are here today. So we're going to do Picture of the Week at the end, but right now I have the picture of the message. Um, If you want to know a little bit about myself, this is the picture. Um, How many of y'all have ever seen this picture before? Anybody? Yes? Okay, one of my favorites. This is called The Scream. This really is what got me into art when I was in middle school, um, was The Scream. I don't know what that means about middle schoolers or myself. But I love this picture, and you can get a lot from this picture. This picture is seen as one of the prime examples of modern art, and a lot of people have said that's like the Mona Lisa of modern art because it displays anxiety and uncertainty inside of the situation that he was in. And if we just stop there at this picture, we can get a nice message. So today we're coming out of John 6, and I think that if we can apply some principles from the screen into John 6... And it's this, you can't just stop at the surface, because the scream communicates more than just what it says on face value to yourself. It's a picture that represents its artist. Its artist was Edvard Munch, and he went through, and inside of his pictures, he says that he put a little bit of himself. He was a person who, if you see that picture, it describes who he is. And so, Munk, if you look at that, that's a picture of something that happened inside of his childhood. He was walking on a boardwalk with some of his friends. And at that point, he looked up and he saw the sky as blood red. And he said that he heard what sounded like this this yearning and this noise, this howling from the earth that was just nature continually sounding out to him. And he looked at the faces of all of his friends and they were pale and yellow. And this is an image from his childhood that stayed with him until he made this art. Now, Mook is somebody who was obsessed with his art. When he died, they went through and they found 20,000 pieces of art that he had just locked behind a door. And so besides everything that he had made during his lifespan, he also had 20,000 other pieces that he had never released. But his childhood was not one that was fantastic. He grew up and his mother had died at the age of five. Nine years later, his surrogate mother, his sister, died. And so he went through life just riddled by death. One of his other siblings was inside of an insane asylum. And so through it all, as he died, there was only one other sister who survived into adulthood. You see, the picture communicates more than just anxiety and the complication. Now, this passage you heard before, in fact, you only heard it a month ago. This passage is Jesus walking on the water, and if you were here when Blake preached on it, you've heard the story of it. And if you weren't here, I'm sure that you've heard the story of Jesus walking on the water. But what I do not want you to do is just stop at the surface level. So we're going to get into the story, but you've got to trace all the way through the story to see the surrounding context inside of this message. And so John, what's the point of John? The purpose of John is to display that Jesus is God. The whole thing with John, and John is a special gospel in and of himself. The first three act more like historical accounts, and then you get to John. And John is a display of how Jesus is God. And he does this through a number of ways. And he really does this through highlighting seven signs is what John calls them, seven miracles that Jesus did throughout his lifespan. Now, Jesus did more than seven miracles. 
But John is purposely highlighting these miracles to show something else. And so we get to our chapter, chapter 6. And the purpose of chapter 6 is that John is seeking to display that Jesus is greater than the Exodus. Now to the Jews, the Exodus was very important to their theology. It was very important to their theology. And one of the highlighting stories to Jews was that of the Passover. So if you remember the Exodus, what occurs, we'll just walk through it, right? In the Exodus, all of a sudden you have the Passover. And the Exodus is all about how the Israelites and the Hebrews left Egypt and went to the Promised Land. And that started with the Passover. And at the Passover, all the firstborn inside the land, unless you had marked your home, had died. And because of that, Pharaoh's own son died. And as the Passover ended... Pharaoh released all these people to go. And as they went, they ended up going to the Red Sea. And if you remember what occurs at the Red Sea, all of a sudden, Pharaoh has a change of heart, and he starts coming after the Israelites. And as he's coming after them, they don't know what to do. Because on one side, you have a bunch of water that they can't cross, and on the other side is a giant army, and they don't know what to do at this point. And that's when Moses turns to the Red Sea and splits it. And finally, they start wandering around in the wilderness. I don't know how many of y'all watch Bear Grylls or Man vs. Wild or anything like that, but I can guarantee you that if I get stranded in the wilderness, I will die. I guarantee you that. More or less, if all of you decide to follow me into the wilderness, you will all die. So, just laying that out there. But as they go into the wilderness, God provides for their needs through this thing called manna. And nobody quite knows what it was. Maybe it was gluten-free. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. But manna was there, and it provided for their needs. And so as we go through John 6, it's important to know that the Passover is fresh on their minds. Mainly because, and verse 4 highlights this, that the Passover was going on at this point in time. And so it's just like July 4th. On July 4th, everything that we see reminds us of July 4th. So we look at circles and we think of fireworks on ads. And we look at things and we just think of everything that relates to July 4th. We do the same thing with all of our major holidays. Right? At Christmas, garden gnomes are garden gnomes. They're what? Elves, right? And so we look at everything and we are tainted by what's going on at that time. And so at this time, we have the Passover going on. And so what Jesus is doing through this entire section of John is Jesus is showing how he is greater than this Exodus story. And John is highlighting this fact that you can take the crossing by itself, but if you just take the crossing, you'll miss the larger message. And the larger message is how Jesus is greater than Moses and greater than this entire process through the Exodus. And so he goes through, and that's why the fifth sign, the crossing on the water, is not highlighted as a sign. John does a good job of highlighting most of Jesus' miracles as signs. But you get to Jesus walking on the water, and John doesn't make a special realization that this was a sign. Now, does that make walking on water not a miracle? No, right? As much as I've tried, I cannot walk on water, right? I can't do it. So this is still a miracle, but I think John purposely doesn't highlight this as a separate event because he's connecting it to the sign that immediately preceded this. That's what we looked at last week with the feeding of the 5,000 men or 20,000 people. 
And so that's what you see. You see that the manna related directly to the feeding of the 5,000. And when these people all of a sudden realize that all of a sudden they're, being, they're having their needs met by this person, they start to think, what is going on? And they start to recollect and remember, well, Jesus did this, or God did this before. When we were in a time of political oppression before, God came through and provided for us inside of our physical needs by providing manna. Maybe this is going on. And all of a sudden, they're starting to relate the story of the Exodus to Jesus. And that especially highlights itself, as we'll pick up in John six fourteen. But before we get there, I want to highlight the purpose of the passage. And the purpose of this passage today is to explain that Jesus was the great I am. Jesus was the great I am, and you'll see it as we come into this passage. Now, I'm going to do this like a story, because... John lies it out, lays it out like a story. And so what's essential to stories is that you understand the characters. And so there are three characters that I want you to see inside of this story. See, if you start thinking about the stories that you've heard of the crossing, a lot of times will highlight people like Peter. Interesting, John never highlights Peter. I don't think that it was because there was some rivalry there. I think it was because he's focusing on something else. He's not focusing necessarily on the faith of the disciples, but he's focusing upon who Jesus really is. And so there are three characters to watch. Watch the crowds. Watch the crowds that are around Jesus. Watch the disciples. They're important to take note of. And then finally, watch Jesus. And the story is really seen how all three of these characters interrelate to each other. So we'll start in John 6, verses 14 through 15. And when people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So let's set this thing up. Scene one is seen at the slopes, right? This was occurring on the mountainside, at the bottom of the mountain, and it's the slopes is where we are. The action is the feeding of the 5,000. And what happens is all of a sudden all these people are surrounded and they're looking for food because it's that time to eat and the disciples know it. And the disciples in the other gospels ask Jesus and say, should we disperse the crowd because it's time to eat? And Jesus says, no, let's feed them. And they look at him like he's crazy. And so he basically says, or I would have looked at him like he was crazy. So what does Jesus do? Jesus says, well, go out and see what kind of food people have. And they find Five loaves of bread and two fishes. And Jesus makes enough food for 20,000 people out of five loaves of bread and two fishes. And so through this, as I said, the people are remembering the story of the Exodus. And they're remembering what happened inside of the Exodus. And all of a sudden, they start thinking, well, we have a political oppressor right now. Rome. And so Rome is our political oppressor. And what we need is we need a king. Because that's what God provided before, and certainly this guy is a prophet in front of us. And so we need a king to help us inside of this. And so Jesus perceives this. I think it's interesting what he says in verse 14, right? This indeed is the prophet who has come into the world, verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force. Can you imagine that? Just imagine standing inside of Jacksonville Stadium downtown. And all of a sudden, a third of it is filled with people, 20,000 people. And you're standing there with 12 of your friends. And all of a sudden, they're going to come after you and try and take you. A little scary, right? What are you going to do at that point in time? 
That's the situation that these disciples were in. So don't gloss, gloss over these two verses and miss that. And so Jesus perceives this. And what Jesus does is Jesus sends his disciples out. And he says, y'all go to the boat. I know it's evening. Go to the boats and go to the other side. And so he sends them away. The next thing he does is he goes and he disperses the crowd and tells them all to go home. And the last thing he does is he disappears into the mountainside. So if you want to think of this land, you've got to think of the land of Israel. And it's like a giant bowl, okay? And so it's this giant bowl. And so we're talking about the wilderness. It's arid as well. So it's not wilderness with forests and trees. It's wilderness with deserts. And so he's out in this land. It's like a grassy land, and it, the area is shaped like a bowl. So on the sides, you have a mountain, and you have mountains all around. Down in the bottom of this bowl, you have a lake called the Sea of Galilee. And so what Jesus does is Jesus sends his disciples down into, towards the lake, and he goes up into the mountains. And so that's what's going on here. As Jesus is retreating while his disciples are going down into it. And we'll pick up now in verse 16. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. Verse 17, they got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Now, I don't know much about going out on the water, but what I do know is it's bad to go out at night. It's very bad, especially back then. See, last night, me and my wife, we tried to go to a pool. Or yesterday, we tried to go to a pool. And we went to a pool, and for about five minutes, we were inside of the pool, and we didn't see anything going on above us. Five minutes after we got into the pool, we look up, and all of a sudden, we see storms. Now, we think, oh, this is Florida, right? Storms just pass by. Just wait five minutes, and it'll pass. Right? That's what we think. Well, then what do we do? Well, we pop out our radar app, and we look, and we see that we are about to get monsoon for the next 35 minutes. So our pool day is over. The disciples can't do that because they don't have smartphones. So the only way that they can see the weather is by looking up. There's a problem there when it's nighttime. You can't look up because it's all dark, right? And you can't look out into the horizons because there are these things on the outside of the bowls, right? They're called mountains. And so it's already hard to go out into the sea anyways as a fisherman because all these storms can all of a sudden show up. But it's even harder now that they're out here in the middle of the night. And so now that they're out there, verse 18, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles out, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Who wouldn't be, right? In the other accounts, all of a sudden they look out and they see Jesus coming at them, and they see and they think that he's a ghost, I would be terrified, and that's the word really used here. It's not just that they were frightened, they were terrified. You're on a boat, and all of a sudden it's storming, and you don't know what to do, and then you look out, and you see this thing coming at you. That's not a great place to be. It's like the thing that nightmares are made of, and here is what we see. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So here's scene two. Scene two is seen inside the middle of the lake, the Sea of Galilee. The action is Jesus walking on the water. And there are three things that I want you to notice about here. So let's take our picture analogy again. 
All right, when we look at the picture, it's important for us to understand what's going on inside the picture before we understand the greater context. So there are three things to understand about this picture before we go into the greater context inside of here. So first, notice how Jesus comes. All right, question and answer. How did Jesus come to them? Walking on the water, right? Strange. Jesus comes walking on the water. Now, when I think about him walking on the water, sometimes I just think like he's walking like kind of as we would through shallow water, you know, because it's a, it's a storm, obviously. And so, you know, you're kind of roughing it through the water to get through. But the actual word there is something that's used like a stroll. This is strange. I can't even imagine how you're doing this on an uneven surface. But the word used there is to describe like you're going on a journey and you stop and you got to stretch your legs and you just start walking around. It's a word that communicates this idea of like sightseeing. So Jesus is going across inside of this storm and he's basically sightseeing as he's walking across the water. It's not that he's struggling. It's not that he's being affected by it. Instead, he's just going. And so in the midst of chaos, Jesus is strolling. And we must realize that nowhere in Scripture does God do anything meaninglessly. Nowhere in Scripture does God do a miracle that's meaningless. He doesn't just all of a sudden show up and just do some miracle just because he can to show off to himself. That's not what God does. I mean, if God wanted to get to the other side, he could just blink and be there. So why in the world was God doing this? And I think Mark 6 is important to understand because Mark 6 states that Jesus did this for the disciples. Because the disciples didn't understand the message of the feeding. And so this is to supplement that idea. So what is he displaying? I think he's displaying God's power, just like we saw with the Red Sea and the crossing. And people may understand this. In Psalm 77, it highlights this. Psalm 77 says this. You don't have to turn there. You just listen. Verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Allusion back to the Exodus. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Your footprints were unseen. In case you didn't get that illusion, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. We have to understand that the message here is that God cannot simply control nature. It's not simply that God controls nature. It's that he exists apart from all of nature. And there's something important to understand there. It's kind of like lights. Okay, we can do really cool things with electricity now. It's not just that lightning happens and we're afraid of electricity. We do cool things like lighting inside of this room. And I can even control the lighting inside of this room. We do it by a little panel over there. But there's something to understand that if I go up to one of these lights and I touch a ground wire, I die. I can control it, but I'm still bound by its rules. The important thing here to realize is that Jesus doesn't just control nature. He's no longer bound by its rules. So he can just walk across the oceans like it's nothing. Because he's not confined or con- um, He's not trapped inside of the physical system that the oceans are. So it's important to notice, and we'll get back to that as we get to the end and start summarizing all three of these points inside this picture. The next thing to notice is that they were afraid. How these disciples reacted. They thought he was a ghost. 
But the last thing to notice is essential to understanding the whole context. And you have to notice Jesus' actions. I think it's important how John highlights it inside of these verses. In verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Jesus' appearance inside of this story did not make everything okay. In fact, Jesus' appearance inside of this story made them more afraid. And I think the next statement by Jesus probably made them a little bit more afraid too because they remember the Exodus story. Now, your English does a horrible way of translating this, but I can't blame them because we wouldn't understand a word that it's talking about if we understood it. So the first word that he says, the first word is, it is I. The real language there says, I am. And so he pops up and he just says, I am. Now, if you, if you don't know me and you come up to me and you say, what is your name? I'm not going to say, I am. You're going to look at me like I'm a nutcase. Like, what does that mean? Right? But Jesus pops up on the scene and he says, I am. And to these Hebrews, they understood exactly what that means. And for you who have been inside a church for a little bit of time, may have heard the story of the Exodus and understand exactly what Jesus is communicating. He's communicating that he is God. He's communicating that he is God. But this is important to see. It's not just that he's communicating that he is God. But it's communicating something else. You see, whenever, Jesus, whenever God in the Old Testament pops up and gives these ideas of I am, people have a natural reaction to that. And that natural reaction is that they stop and they're afraid. If you remember the story of Moses, all of a sudden this bush is burning and he says, hmm, that's weird. It's not being burned up. It's just burning there. And so he goes to it and the bush starts talking to him. Another weird thing. And then the bush basically communicates that the bush is voicing God, and it drew him over so God could talk to Moses. And the immediate thing is, you know, he says, well, who are you? And he says, I am. And then he tells him to take off his shoes because it's holy ground. Inside of Moses' own life, when he goes to Sinai, he requests to see God face to face. And God says, no, I can't show you that. Because if I show you who I really am, you will die instantaneously. Your sinful condition cannot exist with my holy presence. And we see that again inside of Isaiah. When Isaiah sees God inside of a vision, he comes to himself and he says, Oh, what an unclean unclean man am I, basically. How much sin do I have inside of my own life? And so the I am statements by God always inside the Old Testament communicate this idea of holiness and power. But Jesus doesn't sit here and inside these verses say, I am, and then say, now start worshiping me right now. Instead, Jesus comes to them. Jesus says, I am, do not be afraid. You see the shift there? Jesus is communicating a shift that's occurring inside of our lives now that he has arrived on this earth. No longer is it we see God and then we have to immediately be afraid. Do we, rever- do we revere God? Yes. Do we see God as holy? Yes. But we do not have to be afraid anymore of God and his presence. And so what do they do at that point? Then they were glad to take him into the boat. I think there's a few applications that we can have here. Number one is that Jesus is the great comforter. Jesus is a great comforter inside of our lives. Listen, there will be storms that occur inside of your life all the time. 
And you cannot control them. And the thing is, we live in a culture and a generation, and I am as much a part of this, that we have to control everything. We have to control it all. That's why on our smartphone that we can control things like our AC, and we can control things like our security system, and we can control our schedules, and we live inside of a world that feels like we have to have total control of everything. But that's not the way life works. Every once in a while, a storm will come up, and it always happens, and you can't control it, and there's nothing you could have done to prevent it. A death may occur inside of your life. An illness could happen to you. A friend may betray you, and there was nothing that you could have done. All of a sudden, all the financial system collapses, and you're left with nothing And there is nothing that you could do, even though we try and act like we can, and we can elect people, and we can do things that will change the world. The reality is there's a lot of times we can't control life. And it's in those times we need to realize that God is there. And so these storms occur inside of this. And inside of the Bible, you see that Jesus occurs inside of two storms on the Sea of Galilee. One time Jesus pops up, And he's asleep, and he wakes up, and everybody's freaked out. And so Jesus comes out on it, and he just hushes the storm. And sometimes that can happen in your life. You start praying to God, God shows up, and God hushes the storm. However, this is the second time. God shows up, and the storm is still going on. God gets into the boat, and the storm is still going on. We have to understand that sometimes in life— We may have God on our side and in our boats with us, but the storm may still go on. That doesn't mean God's not powerful. That doesn't mean that God doesn't exist above our problems and can control all of our problems. But it means that the problems still exist and God is still great. And too often, whenever we sit here, we act like the problem exists. I invite God and God has to fix it. And the story here is that God does not always fix it. Just because the storm continues in your life does not mean that God is not powerful enough to stop your storm. But the story continues. Look on verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but the disciples had gone away alone. They're saying, look, we've been waiting for Jesus. We saw the disciples go. Where's Jesus? He's not here anymore. And so the other boats from Tiberias came near the place. Basically, the taxis came back. And when they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks, so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So the first time that they can go, they hop into the boats and they go. Verse 25, And when they found him on the other side of the sea, They said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? How did you get here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do? to be doing the works of God. And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, if we quickly glance over this section, we can assume that Jesus' problem with the crowd was saying, look, you're only looking for me for a quick meal. You're treating me like McDonald's and I'm just a drive-through and you come through and I give you a meal and you're gone. 
But if we do that, we're missing the giant narrative. Because that idea has a problem. Verse 2 says that they came because of the signs. So when we look at verse 26, and Jesus says, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs. Is God, is John contradicting himself? Is he having a period where he's starting to write this story, and now he's contradicting himself in the middle of this story? The answer is no. Because John is trying to highlight something else that's going on within these people. And it relates to their hunger. But it also relates to something else that we saw with the crowd right before that. Remember, I told you to look three people, right? The crowd, the disciples, Jesus. We saw the disciples and Jesus. The last time we saw the crowds, what were they trying to do with Jesus? Make him king, right? And so it's not just their spiritual hunger that Jesus is trying to talk to with them here. It's their beliefs about who Jesus is and their religious system that he's trying to address. John is not just comparing spiritual hunger to physical hunger. John is not just focusing on faith over fear. That was the story of Blake, and it's true inside of Matthew. That's what Matthew's focusing on. But John here is not focusing on that. Instead, John is focusing on where we draw our spiritual hunger. Because Jesus' problem with the crowd was that their physical need and religious beliefs were clouding their spiritual problems. So the beliefs that they had about Jesus as this prophet coming to rescue them politically, and their beliefs that he was here to help give them stuff like food, was clouding their real spiritual problem. They're sitting here trying to make Jesus into a religious leader, and they were trying to force Jesus into their political and their religious systems. And here's my question, do we do that today? How often do we sit here and we try and force Jesus into our religious and our political situations? If you get nothing else from the sermon, this is the message that John is driving home through this feeding of the 5,000, through him walking on the water, and through now. It's that you can never force Jesus into anything. You can't force Jesus into anything. Nature can't force Jesus to have to take a boat. You can't force Jesus to become a political king. You can't force Jesus to become anything because Christianity is not a political program. Christianity is not a political program put into place by coercion. Christianity is not a religious belief that can be taught or learned. Christianity is much bigger than that. We can't sit here and act that we exist and we are Christians, and so that means that we have to promote some kind of political agenda for the rest of the world to follow. Does Christianity have something to do with our politics? Yes, individually. But we can't sit here and say Jesus is supposed to be our political king of the United States or of any other country because that's exactly what they were trying to do. Jesus is not here to become our political king. Jesus here is here to become our personal king. And there is a difference here. And if we miss that, then we missed everything. And too often from pulpits, we hear people trying to talk about politics, and I'm so glad that we don't do it here a lot. And I'm doing it now, but I'm doing it just to highlight the fact that from the pulpit, we can't just sit here and preach political agendas. It's about your personal life. Jesus came for their personal lives, and their political ideas was preventing them from seeing their personal needs of sin, and that they needed something to take care of their sin. So if I stepped on all of your political toes, I'm about to step on other toes. Jesus is not just some kind of magical name that we can pop into a prayer or pop into life and pretend like he's going to do something for us. 
It's not just that we pray in Jesus' name and expect for it to be done. He doesn't work that way. So now we're going to go into another toe system. He's not a theological system to be implied and to be taught. I love systematic theology. That was one of my favorite classes in seminary. But if we believe that we can just completely have systematic theology, then what we're doing is we're taking Jesus and we're saying, Jesus, this is your system in your box. And when we force Jesus into that theological construct, then now we're saying, look, our brains are bigger than you, God. There's a reason why we can't know all of who God is. Because he's not some simple theological system. And if he was, then we could just follow the rules. And what Jesus came on this earth to do was to break the rules and to pay for our sin debt. So that way we can live a life outside of the box. But too often we're still living inside of the box and we constantly fight God. And we don't think about it that way. Right? If you're an unbeliever, you don't think that you're fighting God. You just think that you don't believe in God. And if I don't believe in that, then that means he's not there. That's like pretending. And I remember, I didn't even plan on going here. The original Jurassic Park, okay? Not the new Jurassic Park, but the original Jurassic Park. I loved it. The guy like has T-Rex coming at him and he closes his eyes and stands still like T-Rex isn't going to see him. T-Rex is still there. Man, I'm comparing God to T-Rex. This is bad, okay? God is still there even if you act like he isn't. God is still there. And even inside a church world, we still fight God because we try and put him inside of some system that we have to check boxes off and say, yes, I did this, yes, I did this, yes, I did this. But God is bigger than that because God is not a means to an end. And even in our prayer language, we can communicate this sometimes because we start putting conditions inside of things. God, I will do this if you do this. God, I will do this when you do this. And I admit it because I've done it. God, I will give more when I get more. Because I can't give more because I don't have more. And I'm not here to say you need to give more because that's breaking what Jesus is trying to say. I'm simply saying we need to stop putting conditions on our Christianity. And only when that happens are we able to truly live it because Christianity is an embrace of an uncontrollable God into your personal life. Christianity is about a belief that produces actions. They asked Jesus, they said, what works do I have to do? And Jesus says, believe. Does that mean that we aren't going to work? We still work for God, okay? But it's different. I'm not working for God to earn something. My belief in God is producing something inside of me that's natural works. And there is a difference there. The belief produces the work. And this is seen throughout the entire story in John 6. At the mountainside, Jesus refused to be made a political king. And so what is he saying? He's saying, look, it's not about your belief system me fitting inside there. It's about me coming through and me working through you to change your political environment. I believe this wholeheartedly, that Christians should be the greatest social change in the world. Christians should be the greatest social movement. Christianity should be the greatest social movement inside of the world. And what we saw through the first couple hundred years is that Christianity was. Rome did not have any type of social welfare program. 
In fact, Romans, if they didn't like their kids or if they wanted to abandon their kids, they did out into the streets. And the people who took in those kids were the Christians. Interesting. And too often we think that the social programs exist and we can just kick it off to them to do. Even if those social programs don't exist, the church needs to be a place inside the world enough that people recognize us. And maybe if people recognize the church for its social goodness, things would be a little bit different now and the church would have a different stereotype. But we're not working so people can see us differently. The social programs aren't based because we want people to see us differently. The social programs are there because we're trying to follow Jesus and be what Jesus was. Jesus cared for the sick. Jesus cared for the hungry. Jesus cared for the people. That's what Jesus did. And we're saying we are like Jesus, so what are we going to do? I believe Jesus did this. And so I'm going to care for the hungry. I'm going to care for the sick. I'm going to care for the little kids. I'm going to care for my family. I'm going to care for my neighbor. I'm going to care for my enemy because Jesus did. And I believe Jesus, and I believe I should live like Jesus. And so I'm going to do what Jesus did. And that thus it becomes a fruit of our belief. And so here at Southside, are we portraying this reality? Questions. Will you drop your conditions with God? Will you drop your conditions with God? Number two. Will you serve him not out of duty or because I have to, but because you know you can do nothing else but serve him? Do you believe in Jesus? And is that belief determining your actions? I want to pop on these two things that are going on here at Southside. Number one is we have this thing called BBS. And number two is we have this thing called GoJacks. See, too often inside of Christian churches, we make it too easy for you just to apply the sermon by walking down an aisle. It's going to be a little bit tougher. See, my application here is, will you apply Jesus into these areas? But it goes beyond these areas. Will you apply Jesus into your life? That's my call to you today. My invitation to you is, yes, we have needs here. We have needs at Go Jacks. Go out into Jacks and so show God's Social love for people. And maybe through you showing God's love, they will come to know him better. And so, will you go into Jacksonville? All this is, is a program where we say, look, we tried to do some hard work for you so you can go serve some places so that way you don't have to have the connections with the Floyd Bash Children's Homes or with the Salzbacher Center. Journey off the mat, that's a VBS. If you want to love kids, that's a great way to love kids and show them that God loves them. That's my invitation to you. Will you serve God? And I hope that Southside becomes a place where we don't have to structure things for you to serve God. You will naturally be serving God inside of your grow groups, inside of your lives. And we will just hear stories of what y'all are doing in Jacksonville. And we can just worship God with you in hearing of what you're doing inside of Jacksonville. Are you serving God? Let's pray. Lord, right now I just pray for us in here. God, I pray as we come to this time of song, Lord, that we can praise you for who you are, an uncontrollable and all-powerful God who loves us. And God, right now I just pray for this church, God, that this church can be a church on fire for you, 
that wants to see you inside of Jacksonville. So Lord, I pray all these things in your name. Amen.